Yeah, I don't know, man. You ever just feel like life is just catapulting towards like, some greater purpose? The only DJ crazy enough to tattoo Jackie Brown on his ass. <laughs> this is Michael Mann, and I ride with extended clip. PG-13? Yes. It's a rough PG-13, honestly. I, I know. Like, I just like thematically. It. True. True. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking about some other scenes. This is like a, I don't know. I mean, not to, again, like, jump the gun, but it's like classic, like, this is an English class movie. You oh, just, yeah. like, have this, I mean, it's based by, like, on a fucking stupid, like, John Irving sucks. I had to read <laughs> one, a, like, a prayer for Owen Meany in high school, and it's, like, similarly, like, this type of bullshit. But like this is one you get the the TV cart rolled in, they pop in the Cider House VHS, and then that's that's two days worth of not teaching to do. Just zone out, and then you know they fast forward through the nude scene. Yeah, it's the worst, worst way to watch the movie. <laughs> and hey, two weeks of not teaching before too, when you have John Irving teaching the class through his book. You know, Damn. he's the real teacher. <laughs> you guys not Garp fans? Well, World according to Garp. <laughs> that's true. That, that's true. We need to talk about authorship. Is it is it John Irving or is it Lassie Halstrom? Wait, is that the guy? Or yeah, is that, yeah, yeah. Or no, Garp is Garp. Hold on, let's walk. No, this Irving, back. Irving, Irving wrote Garp. Halstrom did not have anything to do with Garp. Welcome to Extended Clip, <laughs> episode one hundred and one. I'm one of your hosts, Eddie Averill. I'm Doctor Lash of the Cider House. I'm JT White. <laughs> the double feature this week is The Cider House Rules by Lassie Halstrom and John Irving from 1999. And Never Die Alone, the, uh, not 1999. What year is it? I 2004. 2004 film. I wrote 1999 because I just couldn't stop thinking about The Cider House when I was arranging my notes for this episode. <laughs> I, I mean, that's kind of what led me to choose Cider House Rules. Maybe not even the movie. I didn't really know what the movie was about. And that kind of led to some confusion while watching it a little bit. But I figured things out. But uh, Cider House Rules... I don't know. That's just that title just had me thinking of like, you know, a cider house. And, you know, there's probably just they got to have some rules because there's some boys just running wild in there having a good time. And, uh, you know, you maybe think it's like kind of like a double entendre, like, you know, cider house rules, cider house, you know, cider house rules. It's sick. That's what I thought. Yeah. At first. Yeah. I was like, I was going in for the cider house rules. <laughs> yeah. And it's like a bunch of boys going down the old cider mill having a great time. <laughs> No, it's just a bunch of sick children and uh, apple pickers. <laughs> <laughs> well, the sick children aren't at the cider house, no. unfortunately. <laughs> I say unfortunately only because of my confusion. I think Malcolm and I maybe suffered from the same problem with this movie where the first 38 minutes of the cider house rules takes place at an orphanage. And I thought the orphanage was called the Cider House, yeah. <laughs> which it didn't have a reason to be called the Cider House. But then again, you go to a lot of different places. They're just named something, you know, oh, that's the old Cider House, you know. Yes. But apparently Cider House meant actual cider was getting produced in this movie. So we talked, you mentioned the Cider House <laughs> rules in some fucking capacity. It was over... Marsh had asked a question in the oh, email about segment house. about m movies that have house in the title. <laughs> yeah, and I looked up a list and Cider House rules was like maybe 32 on there. And I just saw the poster. I saw Michael Caine, Tobey Maguire, and Charlize Theron all giving bright smiles on the cover in a big old house and i was like i want to see what's inside that goddamn cider house it just the the the, the picture on letterbox had like toby 
turned back with you know with a smile if charlie's there in the yeah, car it's yeah. like maybe good times could be had here and to be honest i do regret um, I mean, it was fun, but it, this is, you know. Well, the film, I, we don't is, like, yeah. the film is not well promoted, even on a letterboxed, I would say. Yeah. Like, uh, the Armand White review says that, you know, you wouldn't know that there's any black people in the film from the promotion. And that's a contemporary review from. Um, actually, no, it's not. This is a later review because he called it Ob- he called it proto Obama or something like that. He called it pre Obama era woke, um, but you could see the marketing for a very different movie. The Cider House Rules. You have Tobey Maguire with his arm around Charlize Theron, looking back at the camera like goddamn Piero LeFou in the uh, in the <laughs> header image, and you're like, what on earth is going on here? Also, Malcolm, you, there's a reason why you paired this with oh yeah, uh, Never Die Alone during the late great DMX, right? Of course, yeah. Well, DMX recently died, and I wanted to honor his name, but also another important person died. Old Prince Philly, Prince Philip, and uh, you know he, you know you could kind of give him a little respect, right? You know he wasn't born into any of the wealth. He came over there, kind of married a rich woman, right? People talk about, people make jokes about wanting to do that, right? I guess he did it, but uh, so I wanted to honor his legacy by picking a movie that had a British person in it. (laughs) (laughs) And I I think I think Michael Caine's a good representative of uh, Britain, the royal family, the royal family, you know. So, and you know, the cider house rules, it was on my mind and I just found, I found a way to make it work. I just, I realized that the, the format of this episode so far, I've been a little off base and I didn't get to set you up for your description of the double feature early on as we usually do. Had to make sure we get that representation Mm -hmm. of Prince Philip through Michael Caine here, (laughs) (laughs) because I think that's very important with Michael Caine doing his American accent that just can't help but slide back into that (laughs) sly cockney uh, mumble in his more kind of like low-key lines of dialogue. But what the fuck is this movie? Who the fuck is Lassie Hallstrom? He he made some... He made all pretty much of the music videos for ABBA. Um, He made some other like Oscar bait movies. This got nominated for Best Picture... And Michael Caine won for uh, Best Supporting Actor. This is 1999. It's supposed to be like the big year of American cinema. That rules. Yeah, I mean. (laughs) The the Oscars for 1999 are just this and American Beauty. I was going to, JT, I was going to go the opposite route where I was like, like, Michael Caine's in this movie for like, the first 30 minutes and then for the rest of the time he's just huffing ether <laughs> on a bed yeah. while while toby mcguire's you know picking apples and having sex or whatever so it's like it, like it's such a funny performance to win for it's just you know what a dog sh- you know dog should perform but you're right it does kind of rule that no, he won that yeah. it is really funny i mean there's a lot uh, I mean, the Cider House rules in the sense that it's such a bad, lazy movie that has like that, like just your your. I, I don't know. It's like such easy Oscar bait with how like pleasant feeling it is, and then it has the big themes. It's uh, but it looks like dog shit. I just I don't know. I admire something that's this like uh. I don't know. Uh, this just this clearly Oscar bait. Yeah, I, th- I actually wouldn't go as far as to say it looks like dog shit. Honestly, I think the I get a little lost in the interiors. 30, 30 minutes in, I was ready to say this isn't a visually pleasant movie, 
once it gets outside of the orphanage, I think it's a visually pleasant movie. Mm-hmm. I think it's like very strong, just like, you know, even if it is Oscar bait, Oscar bait studio cinematography in 1999 is at least kind of pleasant looking. It's, it's, and there, there's some really nice, like wide exteriors, but he's not reinventing the wheel in any fucking way. I mean, like, like outside is pleasant, but I just feel like in terms of shot, composition and like camera movement there's not a whole lot there's there. a couple crazy ones i would think there, there's one when delroy lindo and i'm sorry to get because i really do not think this film is well directed <laughs> i think the cinematography is pretty good it's not well directed mm-hmm. visually i guess in the sense that none of this contributes to any like really, yeah any any sort of fucking meaning but when delroy lindo is talking to toby mcguire about uh, the different types of apples, and he's like, "Let me, let me see your apple picking skills, man." You know, mm-hmm. and it's a very inane scene that means absolutely <laughs> fucking nothing. The camera—it's a crazy crane maneuver through this apple orchid, and uh, I don't know—it like swoops all around and goes up and down and moves in from a wide to like a close up on each guy. And there's some crazy maneuvers going on. That's like it must just be like. We have forever and unlimited money to shoot this. Let's just go crazy. And the actors are probably doing the same thing. And it basically never works. But there's like 30 second stretches where you're like, oh, that's actually kind of a cool shot. No, yeah. I feel like I think the cinematography is like, all right. I think it's more expensive than anything. And I think lavish. and, and And that's what's kind of maybe somewhat pleasurable about it. And that's kind of maybe was part of the appeal of me picking this movie. I wanted like bright middle brow color palettes very like almost sitcom like lighting schemes almost oh yeah yeah this tv in the daylight it played like fucking gangbusters (laughs) (laughs) and like that that could be pleasant sometimes given i don't know if some you know maybe some more uh, story pleasures from the story could come about but that's what's funny about this movie it's like what the (laughs) fuck is this like okay such a weird like it's kind of strangely structured and it's like yeah it's a name it's like so i mean we usually like low stakes but it's trying to cash in on like some sort of emotions that we carry with the characters so it, it doesn't quite let itself be i mean it introduced some things towards the back end of the movie that i guess that up the stakes a little bit it's true <laughs> uh, let's let's talk about what the cider house rules is and i swear to god if i start like going beat by beat through the plot just cut me off because yeah. it'll take five hours and it will be the most boring podcast yeah. ever <laughs> But just speed run through the plot. Yeah, speed Let's run do it. it. Tobey Maguire is an orphan, and he's raised by Michael Caine, uh, who is this orphan doctor who delivers babies. Doctor Latch. Also, and yes, his name is Doctor Latch, and low key, you know, performs some abortions. And after you know, Tobey Maguire learns the tricks of the trade. Uh, he leaves with uh, some of their clients, Paul Rudd and Charlize Theron. And uh, he, he's just like, I'm going to go there. Paul Rudd's going to give me this apple picking job uh, where I get to hang out with Delroy Lindo and Erica Badu and uh, try to hang out with Charlize Theron, even though Paul Rudd, the alpha, is looming. But then he goes to war and, you know, Toby gets to hook up with Charlize and he gets to learn about the value of hard work from Delroy Lindo. But he has to go back to his old ways upon finding out that uh, Erica Badu... Uh, one of the one of the apple pickers, one of the migrant workers who seasonally lives and works at the titular cider house, is pregnant 
by way of her father, Delroy Lindo. Uh, and so Tobey Maguire must, uh, you know, he, he, he was always a little grossed out when Michael Caine was doing abortions. He was like, <laughs> can I just go back to fixing the film reel that we yeah. have? Like, isn't I that, really don't want to watch this. Isn't that their fault? <laughs> yeah, he, is, he is really just like straight up grossed out by it, which is pretty funny. Yeah, no, it's like if you're, I mean, I can't imagine like helping with a pregnancy and and performing an abortion are all that radically different in terms of things to be grossed I out mean, by. Well, one, whoa, well, someone's whoa, never yeah. done either of those. I was going to say, well, one, you're bringing it. <laughs> Have uh, you? <laughs> uh, let me just say that next to Jesus Christ on the cross, right there, I have my DVD of Doctor T and the Women, so I know a little. Which <laughs> I've seen window water baby moving. Uh, yeah, Doctor T and the Woman strangely feels like a Christian movie to me in a lot of ways. I think it's the Christ-like pose that he has. <laughs> yeah, 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 right. uh, to quote you, blessed and confused, maybe much like our Lord and Savior. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, what, what do you make of this story? What, what's going on it's here? Like, I, like why, why? It's so strange because at first, like I thought, it's like I mean, once it takes fucking forever to get us out of the Cider House orphanage. Um, Which sucks. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the orphanage is. See, that's the thing. I was ready to go half star mode on this film when the or once you finally get an exterior shot, you're like, oh my god, it's a movie again. <laughs> yeah. Fuck, dude. The first thirty minutes of Michael Caine stumbling through his uh, American accent that he said he based on John Houston. Here in St. Clouds, I try to consider with each rule I make or break that my first priority is an orphan's future. And <laughs> just like saying. Good night, my sweet princes of Maine and <laughs> kings, of, kings New of New England. England. Yeah. The lamest, like, it's like when you give yourself a nickname, you know? That moment is so clearly John Irving as a writer and especially as the filmmakers and the actors right there, like, making the clip moment. Making yeah, the moment that people will quote and the clip that will play at the Oscars. And it's so corny and it's so just lame. And like the only sentimentality is derived from the fact that like you're at an orphanage. It's like you don't really spend all that much time with like any of the kids to differentiate yeah. any of them or anything to got, latch on to. Is that Dewey from it Malcolm yeah. Dewey from <laughs> and, as the bubble boy? Yeah. <laughs> and one, one orphanage named Curly or whatever. <laughs> like, they got Curly, Scratchy, <laughs> yeah. Moe. The whole gang. Shemp. <laughs> you know, yeah, that, and that's, I, I was, you know, I think I said in my head, like, Cider House Rules, you know, I knew it was an orphanage movie, but, like, I thought it would be, you know, like, Maybe a lot of people, more, more kids, more Toby's age, you know, yeah. kind of running around doing hijinks. But it's just a bunch of, like, dumb little kids who are like, oh, read to me. You're like, what does that mean? <laughs> and they're all what is, sick. What is immigration? Like, it's just Why like, Why are they up. all sick all the time? <laughs> yeah. Like, I get the bubble boy, but, like, the rest of them are always coughing and shit. It's World War yeah. II. It's not the plague. <laughs> but once you leave that, like, milieu, when Toby bounces, I was like, okay, I was, like, interested. Like, this is, like... A sem a semi autistic man like exploring <laughs> like like learning how the real world works. Yeah, we haven't described Toby Maguire's <laughs> oh character, which is <laughs> I do not know what they're going for. Maybe if I read the book, there's a description of like his actual like the way his brain works. But first of all, he has been like uh, you know gaslit by Michael Caine into thinking he has this heart condition where if he gets excited he'll die which never like comes into play it's just yeah. like Michael Caine's like remember that remember that <laughs> remember that uh and of course it's later then revealed that Michael Caine was lying and that mm. was his way of keeping him out of the army 
uh, in yeah. World War Two, which is like the justifiable war. But whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, hey, I if mean, he hey, doesn't want if he doesn't want to serve, he doesn't want to serve. Maybe it's the wrong time. Maybe it's the wrong time. Actually, now that I said now that I say that, let me backtrack. <laughs> Let me backtrack. <laughs> Paul Rudd was talking about flying around the Pacific Rim and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's good that Toby stayed. Yeah. You know, it's so funny about Toby. He was going to go to the wrong parts of the battle, you know? <laughs> well, to- yeah. I mean, he's he's a wonder kid, right? So you put him on the battlefield, he's going to figure it out. But, you know, he just has like the dumbest look on his face throughout yeah. this movie, especially when he's um, like standing or sitting next to Charlie's Theron, you know, and I get what he's going for, but he just has like... Just the most like dumbfounded. Oh, it's real G whiz energy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's just like oh shucks. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like it's the notion of someone who's been trapped in like an orphanage their whole life, who really doesn't know anything about the outside world. I'm like, okay, that that has me interested a mm, little yeah. bit. But then it's like, I'm they're plopping him in the cider house, <laughs> and, and like you're stuck there, and I, it's it becomes about like. I don't know. It's it's a race movie then with like a person who is not lived in like an actively like yeah. an actively racist society. He's like yeah. sort of pushed away in the orphanage. It's yeah, yeah perplexing. No, also, the orphanage stuff. Not to keep harping on this, but like, why do we have like five different scenes of these kids not getting adopted? Like none of these kids matter at all. Toby Maguire's not in those scenes either. Like it's not him bearing witness to parents neglecting or uh, denying these kids homes or whatever. It's just more misery pretty much. Yeah. Well, you know, that's, you know, this is, it's a PG 13 movie, you know, it's an Oscar favorite, you know, it might've been a family movie. You, you put this on for your kids. They, they see kids on the screen for the first 30 minutes. They're interested. Toby goes to the cider house. You know, yeah. you enjoy the drama there. You know, they go to sleep. So Toby goes to the cider house. He gets a job picking apples. And Delroy Lindo's like, man, it's, you know, you're making history working with us. Because it's like, wow, I can't believe it. There is a white boy picking apples with black guys Mm -hmm. in 1940. Yeah. Pretty, I mean. Pretty radical. I guess, what is this, like in, like, Massive Maine? It's in Maine? Yeah. Bangor, Maine? Maybe that's how they do things over there. I don't know. So the cider house, they all sleep there. There's rules that they don't read until the end, and the rules are nothing anyway. That that the rules them that's the worst like MacGuffin kind of thing ever. Yeah. It's like learning what the rules are when it's just like don't sit on the roof. Don't there smoke are yeah. in three bed. rules about the roof. Yeah, which yeah. is like a joke or whatever. But yeah. it's just like, well, then, I don't know, man. And then I mean, I don't know to kind of get ahead of ourselves, right? It's like. We've kind of learned that Delroy Lindo is like having sex with his own daughter and like he gets like this weird monologue about the rules like we just make up the rules as we go along or something like I'm like yeah what is also like what is I don't I, it's such a strange beat to set up this cider house thing to set up like you know kind of like uh, this you know the racial tension there's not much tension but this dynamic and then it concludes with like yeah, the the guy who seemed the coolest there was having sex with his daughter. He's raping his daughter. Yeah, I don't know what that's supposed to say at all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's so weird. It's like, and then Delroy Lindo is like kind of forgiven for it in a way. It's yeah. like a very weird, yeah, gentle weird. ending. Like they don't process that in a way. I, well, like, Delroy did teach Toby how to be a crazy ass white boy. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so and he just kind of like runs away. They or they both just kind of 
Well, how does they both just run away? Like Eric no, got budget? Delroy oh, Lindo fucking oh, yeah. uh, dies. Like they they oh, get yeah. into a struggle off screen, of course, because this guy's not going to shoot action in this movie. Mm-hmm, Delroy Lindo is left wounded, bleeds out uh, off screen. I think yeah. we see him dying. Eric Badu ran away. Toby Maguire goes back to the orphanage to take Michael Caine's job because Michael Caine is now dead because he was too busy getting high and making out with nurses yeah i think that, that i kind of like that yeah. where it's like most of michael kane's character is just that he gets high and makes out with the nurses but like there's no sentimentality there it's just funny no this is the stretch of the movie that got me interested it's when you know michael kane and toby were out there getting it you yeah. know what i mean yeah i mean it's at least it's some sort of like intrigue of the, like this new relationship that toby has of charlie's Theron. it's like it's the thing that makes the most sense within the context of just movies I've seen before, right? Like kind of this yeah. romantic drama. I mean, it's not great either, but it's just like, I don't know. It's something. And then, I mean, there's a little shred of conflict there with him yeah. like taking Paul Rudd's girl. Yeah. But then it's Paul Rudd's coming back and he just dips. Yeah. And it's yeah. like goes back to like the, the orphanage. He's and it like, feels like... <laughs> Well, no, Paul Rudd doesn't come back. He dies in combat. Oh, he, he comes back paralyzed. Oh, he came yeah. back paralyzed. That's what it was. She's like, yeah, I yeah. have to, you know, I have to go. I have I mean, to I tend can't. to Paul Rudd. Yeah. <laughs> but her his relationship with Charlize is so weird, too, because it's like, so she takes him to this drive-in movie theater. This is during World War II. There were not, there were, like, drive-ins were invented in, like, I, I think it's 1933. I looked this up. And there was a patent on them. So there was only like 20 drive-ins in all of America for like the first like 15 years until 1950 that patent got overturned and that's why the 50s and 60s are like the boom of the drive-in and it became this Mm -hmm. huge fucking thing. So the fact that like, so is this supposed to be one of the 20 drive-in theaters? Also, the patent was not called drive-in, so it wouldn't have been called that back then. Yeah. I hate to be Real this Real cinemasins. Yeah. I know, here. I hate to be this fucking guy, but it really, it, it, it scratched my itch. Only Whoa. because it's like a movie where it's like cinema plays a big part. Because yeah. they have the film, they have the 16 millimeter or 35, probably 16 millimeter film of King Kong. And they watch that at the orphanage and... Uh, Toby fixes it all the time and that's the only movie he's ever seen so when they go see Wuthering Heights he you know doesn't like it because it's not like King Kong I guess Uh, but like you know she's like oh you've only seen one movie in your life and I don't know the but like I don't buy movies meaning a lot to him at all. <laughs> like yeah. He had movie night with the kids and I get that meaning a lot. This is uh have you seen a lot of movies here? Yes and no. I mean, when you come here, you don't really care about the movie. (laughs) You don't care about the movie? What are you so crazy about movies for? Uh, That was my favorite night at the orphanage, movie night. We'd We'd all race into the dining hall. And of course, everyone wanted to sit in front, so we'd... We'd be packed in so tight, you could feel the kid next to you breathing. But going to see Wuthering Heights, like, I just don't get that beat at all. No. Unless it's literally an Oscars, we love the love of movies. But <laughs> I think he might be you, getting at something. But when right. you yeah. go at that approach, it's so fucking inaccurate and just stupid. Yeah. I guess that's why it's Oscars favorite. I mean, yeah, I, it's just a dumb, I, it's a really it's a dumb, really fucking dumb, dumb movie. movie but that's, okay, yeah. New Cider House, Us Three. <laughs> what are our rules? I have them right here. Number one, must love cider. 
<laughs> number sure. two, if you refer to it as sidey, you will be ejected. Damn, okay. Number three, if you lose a game of ping pong, cornhole, foosball, etc., <laughs> you must chug a cider. <laughs> if you win a game of ping pong, cornhole, foosball, etc., you must chug two ciders. This is more what, more what I was expecting out of Cider House yeah. rules. Maybe like some some frat plays, you yeah. know what I mean? And, some... and the fifth one, the final rule, is that every time we do a toast, it has to be a variation on Michael Caine's Princes of Maine, uh, Kings of New England. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're so right about how that's like definitely like such like a Oscar bait trailer line. And it's like, to their credit, I guess, the way they set it up, that is like the one line you would remember from the movie. But it's yeah, like, exactly. It's because it's, so, it's, it's so stupid. It's so forced and dumb. Like it's just like JT. You what was your letterbox? Oh, this I was. I've been saying this like ever since I I uh, was watching the movie. Good night, you suckers of dick, you eaters of penis. <laughs> oh God, I guess we just have to end it there. Yeah. I'm gonna give this one. I gave it 1.5 on Letterboxd. I'm, I'm sticking with it. 1.5 bullets for me. There's enough to at least po- poke fun at and like have fun with. Where it's 1.5 feels right. I'm going to go 1.5 bullets as well. Yeah, there's like just a bunch of like just weird thing, like the strange beat of like Kieran Culkin implying that he might be like murderous or whatever. <laughs> and when they show him like pretty good one yeah. scene performance from Culkin. There yeah, too. where like he you know makes a joke about finding his parents and killing him. And then when Toby leaves, he's like seen carving a knife, out, whittling a knife out of a branch or Straight something. Straight out of like uh, <laughs> David Spade's son in Grown Ups 2. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So yeah, gags. The little gags along the way keep yeah. me interested. Um, yeah, Lassie Hallstrom, King of the Middle Brow. So it's, he's not going to make anything completely yeah. unwatchable, but I think this is pretty it gets there sometimes <laughs> it's, it's also it's also pretty long two hours and change like yeah it's logs but uh yeah it, i was actually surprised that it's only like 125 minutes i thought it would have been like a 150 piece you they, know? they must have just like we don't they knew, <laughs> like, they knew. let's wrap it up <laughs> yeah jt um also one and a half for Sixth from sense. me yeah i don't know there's not much more to add to it it's the piece of shit but it was funny. Like there are so many points where I was like hooting and hollering, just enjoying like I don't know the. I mean, I I try not to laugh at like bad <laughs> movies. I I'm always trying to enjoy them. But when it's like a sixty million dollar Oscar bait yeah. movie, I think it's okay to kind of laugh at a and movie trying to be good. Just like also like fuck like middle brow New England bullshit. Like New mm-hmm. England like. Yeah. I mean, there are good New Englanders out there. The Fairleys, we love them, yeah. of course. But they're like they're down in the lowbrow trenches, like yeah, middle true. class New England can go fuck itself. Yeah, fuck Manchester by the sea. <laughs> I no, like no, that no, movie. no. I, I just I just thought it'd be you know I controversial like thing to say. Yeah, I think I'm, it's fine. It's good. Okay. <laughs> it's okay. We'll be right back. You don't have to feel bad about it. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's a movie about feeling bad, so I'm gonna feel bad about it. Why don't you go mope like he did? It won't solve your problems. <laughs> Fine, I'll just go freaking set my house on fire. <laughs> send your kid to the cider house. <laughs> I'm going to send my kid to the cider house. That's a new cider house rule. <laughs> you are not allowed to leave the stove on if you go to get more beer. <laughs> no leaving we the stove We got ciders on. here. <laughs> uh, no need to get That's beer. true. <laughs> That's true. Oh my God, Manchester by the sea. Casey, your problems are solved if you go to the cider house. Cider house in Quincy, Mass, you know. <laughs> All right, we'll be right back. Good night, 
you princes of Maine, you kings of New England. <laughs> it's so funny that, like, Rasputia is just, like, the most evil person ever. And then, like, <laughs> the woman that, like, could say that would probably be best from just a beautiful woman. Like, just a funny <laughs> yeah. thing to have. An in innocuous, beautiful woman. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Norbit's like, I gotta get rid of my disgusting My favorite type of beautiful woman (laughs) (laughs) Sorry to cut you off No, I mean, I think that's all I had No, No, it's it's all good (laughs) I was pretty much done with talking about Norbit At that point I mean, it's not what I'm gonna be talking about during the middle segment Because I, I don't know, I was saying I think when Malcolm talked about it It pretty much summed up my thoughts But (laughs) it was great to see And uh, I admire The hateful spirit of it <laughs> it's uh what i will talk about i think is is similar in that 2000s feeling mm. of being able to be hateful i i'm also going to talk about something hateful from the <laughs> 2000s let's let's go okay. we're back on malcolm in the middle malcolm yeah are you going to talk about something hateful from the 2000s <laughs> uh no i'm gonna watch what a i'm gonna watch i already did uh <laughs> you can watch it again that's hey you're right. I wasn't wrong. I was just uh, making future predictions. But uh, Beyond Therapy, Robert oh, okay. Altman, 1987. I mean, um, Dr. T. It's been people have been talking about Dr. T. Let's look at some. Let's you know, Dr. T's great. So let's look at some other, you know, slept on Altmans. That that was my thought process. And you know what? I liked Beyond Therapy quite a bit. Like I I see it has a pretty much uh, negative response. And you know what? I can see why. It is like Altman just going full wacky joke per minute like cinder block on the gas pedal type uh narrative but i think i don't know it's kind of funny you know you have a jeff goldblum he's a mischievous bisexual who uh, is uh breaking up his relationship with his boyfriend with an opportunity to you know sleep with a woman and he's kind of uh throughout the movie distancing himself from uh his boyfriend who's played uh in a full stereotype garb by Christopher Guest, <laughs> which is kind of interesting to see in an Altman movie. And I, I don't know, a lot of it's like a lot of nonsense, a lot of like therapy, like dumb therapy scenes. And there's some good jokes that come out of it. But like, I don't know, like Altman with like just kind of like these weird concepts and like kind of like these um, random side characters he gets in the mix just for like a little like small moments allows him just to pull off some shots that require context to like that to give it like that amazing feel but like it's kind of like almost like he's reverse engineering like these great shots but it's like i I don't i don't really care and plus like there's just like a great shot of like um there's like a one of the the delusional therapists is i think uh genevieve page and like she's um telling her clients like you need to go she's basically you need to go out and like have some sex like go to the park (laughs) like maybe you know get some flowers look affable and then like it just cuts to um him like in the park you know with a flower and then it cuts to the christopher guest character who's like leading like a jogging group and it's just like a crazy like one take shot in the motion and it is really good but it's like you would need all that context to really enjoy it but uh so yeah i don't know it for curiosity it uh, it piqued my interest. I liked it. JT, what uh, about you? Yeah, well, when I say hateful from the 2000s, I don't... The movie itself is not hateful. It's a very tender movie that I think is intimate and beautiful. Um, but the reaction to it, from what I remember at the time, I mean, admittedly, I was nine, 
was very like uh, inappropriate and hate filled. And it was the movie in question. It is Brokeback Mountain Ooh. by Ang Lee. And <laughs> such a hateful film. <laughs> <laughs> I've really been um, getting into Ang Lee's work. He's uh, a real um, great director. But I, I was doing like a project with my friend Tim where we were doing a bunch of like Bush era classics. And all that I remember from Brokeback Mountain's release is an infinite amount of jokes about this is the movie with gay sex in it. And it's like from so many mainstream like comedy outlets were like doing it. And like it was I think it relates to something we talked about on the Patreon like a while back with like scary movie. And it's just surprise or not surprising, but it's like it's always a good reminder to see how disingenuous and like hate filled just like 16 years ago there was to a very earnest portrayal of like repressed homosexuality that it was like oh well there's ass fucking in the thir- in the first 30 minutes of this fucking movie was like the main thing that came out of it the first 30 minutes you got to make them wait baby <laughs> <laughs> but it's just like i don't know i do remember laughing my fucking ass off at the family guy bit you remember when <laughs> peter was singing the song about it no how's it go i'm not why don't you drop the clip yeah no sing it (laughs) sing it refresh you can drop the clip no i'm not gonna sing it it's peter i I respect seth too much to do an imitation of that song that's true he has his own albums and stuff he's a professional anyway stream seth (laughs) mcfarland well there once were two cowboys all alone out on the trail and they discovered they could sleep with another male. Now they're having butt sex. Cowboy butt sex. Because I was not surprised by how beautiful and like amazing it was as a movie, but just, I mean, obviously, like you do comedy shit, like you're going to mine it for whatever riffs and bits you can do. But I, at the very least, I think you could do a lot more with Brokeback Mountain and <laughs> like uh, like what? what, what no, I'm not. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm not trying to pedal this into. You could have better homophobic like, uh, humor about get, Brokeback like, the Mountain. The fact that they're cowboys in there, you know. Yeah. Well, that's part of the Peter Griffin song too. <laughs> yeah, I guess I wasn't really Damn, thinking outside Seth really the box. Beat us to the punch on this one. But no, it's just an interesting reminder that like when sincere stuff does emerge that like deals with. Um, actually, like progressive topics and I, I, identity and inclusion, like just like 16 years ago, it was laughed off. But now those same people, like who were writing scary movies and doing those jokes, now are like completely woke. Yeah. And uh, I don't know. It's just yeah. In- now they can't get enough of this fucking identity <laughs> politics. Now it's Brokeback Mountain every month when I go to the movie theater. Yeah, the fucking get a new job. I have to watch Brokeback Mountain in the training room. <laughs> every fucking job. <laughs> yeah. I get fired from these jobs because I can't sit through Brokeback Mountain. <laughs> Sorry. Go on. No, no. That's. I mean, I think yeah. that was like the main thing is that I was surprised. That you had to watch it at your new job. <laughs> no, no. That I was surprised that it was like. Again, not surprised, but that it was such a tender movie that I feel like the lasting like cultural legacy of it is like there were a bunch of gay jokes made yeah. about yeah. it in the Bush era. It didn't get its due. It's a yeah. good movie. 
Yeah. Okay. Give it, I'll give watch it, it. Lay off of it. Eddie. I think I actually have it on stop DVD. Stop with the Brokeback Mountain <laughs> jokes. <laughs> My God. I, I literally can't stop with the Brokeback Mountain <laughs> jokes. Just now, now, that I, now that I've watched like hundreds of Westerns since Brokeback Mountain and I know like the patterns of Westerns, just like imagine because a lot of those movies are very homoerotic as it mm-hmm. is you know so just adding the hardcore scenes in there is just very fun you know adding <laughs> some hardcore scenes and stuff like uh you know red river is always fun and to it's imagine. like there's not even that much like gay sex that happens a lot of it is just them it's not hardcore gay sex on the screen it's not x-rated uh, i mean a lot of it is them apart like just like hating their fucking wives and mm. being gay and like ha- having to get a bitch wife and just oh. being upset oh god <laughs> all right now i'm on this movie so yeah <laughs> you know sometimes the cowboy has to sing the blues you know? <laughs> Uh, I, you know, I for the guy who says, oh, I watched a hundred f- westerns. I didn't even watch any movies this week, other than the pop. I, I watched some, but like, not, not worth, not, yeah, no big deal. I'm gonna talk about TV, yeah, because sometimes I do that. Uh, actually, I don't usually. I usually leave that to you guys. But no, you usually, usually, you're always always talking about TV. Actually, mm-hmm. <laughs> I've never talked about. You television. just edit that out. Eddie's Mister Television, as far as I'm concerned. I did talk about Mad Men once, but this will be my second time talking about television. Hey, let it rip, man! Don't don't feel bad about it. <laughs> I know it's a movie podcast and all, but. It's okay. You you don't have to apologize uh, because I learned that apologies don't really mean anything. It's about actions oh, uh, from this show. I, I watched a little bit of The Shield. Watched the first three episodes of The Shield, the FX show starring Michael Chiklis that ran from 2002 to 2008. Uh, it is a cop drama, not quite a procedural, uh, more along the lines of the 2000s prestige dramas and I like The Shield because in the era of that like morally ambiguous TV drama protagonist, uh, Michael Chiklis is allowed to just go fucking Death Wish 3 mode. Like, he is not ambiguous at all. It is one of the most purely just gnarly shows I've ever seen because of its dedication to absolute sleaze. So Michael Chiklis... He, he leads what's called the strike team, and it's like basically a gang within the LAPD. And uh, it, it's much like Den of Thieves in that regard, where that movie's about a bunch of sheriffs who are in one of these sheriff's gangs, you know, who definitely go outside the law to get the bad guys. And this show is just so unrepentant in its police brutality. And I think it's at a time of cultural conservatism like with stuff like 24 on the air where that can just be played off as getting the bad guys at any cost any means necessary or from the other end as a critique of brutality and stuff like that uh an invasion of privacy and whatnot but like also who cares about what they were doing at the time you know this is we're in 2021 watching this show that started in 2002 so hindsight isn't just 2020 hindsight allows you to just revel in the sleaze of the era as hard as you can and michael chiklis's uh charisma is like like the way he talks is just like your shitty drunk uncle uh but physically he's like a fucking wwe wrestler with a gun it's his physical imposition in this is fucking incredible and the supporting cast around him really helps uh kind of balance out that like dark man prestige tone with like 
fucking classic police procedural shit going on behind him to keep the wheels turning. And also like how localized it is. It pretty much all takes place within Echo Park and uh, pretty much like at the actual park in the first three episodes. And Walton Goggins fucking kills it too. He's one of the pretty much his number two for the first three episodes. And uh, it's sick. So yeah. Go Prestige TV. Go stream it, like we like we said. On FX. <laughs> FX now. FX. We have the movies. Is that their title? Is that their logo? No. Is that their? Ooh, boy. We'll be right back yeah. on extended <laughs> clip. Dumbo sleeping. <laughs> oh, that rules. The autobiography of a king. Chapter one. Get away. Today is the first day of the rest of my life. Caught my stash for moon. Now it's time to wave goodbye to that motherfucker. I was gonna stick around till Mother's Day. Figured some of my bitches would have some extra cash for a nigga. You know, along with those government checks. That stupid bitch Edna fucked that up. And we're back on extended clip. Uh, Never die alone is the second half of our double feature and while we may have been taking prince philip's death in jest uh we do want to uh you know pay homage uh to dmx with this selection here this is ernest dickerson's film we've talked about ernest dickerson before with bones and I believe we've talked about both Demon Knight and Bulletproof in passing on the podcast, as well as his uh, cinematographic works for Spike Lee. Here, he is teamed up with uh, Super 16 specialist Matthew Libatique. I actually don't know how many movies he's shot Super 16 on, but this <laughs> one looked like he was a fucking expert because Libatique fucking go libatique and dickerson together i'd have to imagine as dickerson as a past dp fucking go off on this movie it is a visual splendor from frame one to the finish libatique is like someone you know and dickerson's like a, a great director a great cinematographer so it doesn't apply to him here but like you could plug him into like a kind of like movie or kind of like whatever movie and it's definitely more interesting because he shot it he is he is a someone star is born yeah exactly like he's definitely he's He's a solid motherfucker for sure. I love when Malcolm says "solid motherfucker." <laughs> that's that's from Wes Watson. I don't want to, you know, terms. You know, terms are tricky. People don't want to, you know, people have ownership over terms and whatnot. Want to give credit to Wes Watson there? Okay, great. <laughs> I'm coughing off that shit. DMX sold me. Just kidding. I would never smoke heroin. Uh, <laughs> we'll get into it. We'll get into it in this movie. Yeah. Um, well, I'm going to ask you all if you would smoke heroin, both of you, and our audience. Never Die Alone <laughs> follows the final days of King David, uh, played by DMX, uh, a, a former drug kingpin who's freshly out of prison and trying to make amends to those he had wronged in the past in the world of drug dealing. He's then killed during a pickup. Uh, DMX, the star of the movie, yes, we see him die 25 minutes in, leaving his life on tape and his wealth and his car to the number one crazy-ass white boy, David Arquette, who shows us the story of King David through listening to the tapes and copying down everything for his forthcoming book. Um, 
these tapes show DMX's establishment of dominance in Los Angeles, his ability to build up and drag down everyone around him. Uh, in, you know, we see this story of his life intercut with Arquette kind of reaping the consequences of what DMX did at the end of his life there. Just like giving this huge amount of money in this car and these tapes to this dude who just happened to be there. This gentrifying, you know, middle class white dude who lives in a black neighborhood because he wants to write about rap music. <laughs> yeah, with the, you know, the Wu-Tang posters and the jazz posters on the yeah. wall. But, you know, very intentional critique. And like, no, yeah, I really like this movie and kind of like, you know, the structure is part of it, right? The way it kind of opens with like the DMX voiceover, you, you are kind of getting that classic noir feel and whatnot. Yeah. And even kind of like the device of Duchovny kind of listening back on the tapes and kind of reacting to all this Wait, stuff. Is it Duchovny or, or Oh, fuck. David Arquette, right? I think it's, yeah, Arquette. it's Arquette. Yeah, I always, I always mix up the two. Yeah, Arquette. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, with, you know, Arquette listening to the tapes, that, that also just kind of has like, this kind of like, uh, you know, just, you know, crime together. Yeah. The story kind, story of kind of feel to it that I just really enjoy. And then you kind of match that with like, you know, just kind of, you know, kind of like mid 2000s, like saturation and like uh, Dickerson's just very willing to like play with his camera, get like some really cool angles off here. It's very stylish, very stylish movie. What'd you think about it, JT? Yeah, I was really impressed. Uh, this is only my second Dickerson, and so going in after Bones, I was really curious to see like what because he gets really visceral and brutal, like with like a lot of Giallo inspired things in Bones, and you do see some of that here. Like I think early on when DMX is shot, he like stabs someone in the eye and that's pretty fucking gruesome. Mm -hmm. And then just even as you watch, I mean, it's not as like graphic with gore, but the way he tears down that woman's life in LA and you see like the effects of drug addiction happen uh, to her and the woman he leaves uh, on the East Coast it's just like that's really brutal and in like fucking intense yeah. and disturbing imagery. Yeah, I mean those two stories that he basically tells in those flashbacks of the two women whose lives he destroyed, that feels the most indebted to film noir. Mm -hmm. uh, especially like it, it feels the most neo-noir where it's the yeah. kind of revisionist thing where it is straight up just like uh, him just destroying people's lives and it's not in the dark. It's like, it, you know, bright. The, all of these scenes are shot in the bright light of the Los Angeles day. You know, mm -hmm. there are a lot of nighttime scenes in this. And, uh, man, the nighttime photography is great. It has this green haze running through it. and uh, But the, these two flashbacks of the two women. Uh, we have, like, a woman who was an actress on a soap opera who, I guess, her, her punishment for getting kicked off of her TV show because of the heroin that DMX was selling and giving to her saying that it was coke was I guess she ends up being like a porn star and then there was another girl who was like in college and going to get her master's but he just turns her into a heroin addict too uh, and then there's also another woman who he already had a child with and uh, you know that scene is the most brutal one of course mm -hmm. because he literally kills her with a bad dose and the son that's there to witness it is the guy, you know, however many years later, uh, who's then sent to kill him. Yeah. And like, 
I, I do enjoy this movie, but the, like the plot is kind of like has a lot of different things going. And I feel like like with like the Michael Ely subplot or whatever with the son or whatever, it kind of feels like the least important one to me. Yeah. I and mean, for, and for that reason, it just kind of it like it, it overcomplicates things a little bit too much. That yeah. Kind of takes away from like the kind of the simplicity, the pleasures of the style. Like, I think it's a really good movie, but I think if you tighten the screws a little bit, like with subtracting like as much of that, I feel like like that would make it like pretty great but I mean still you get a lot here that's worthwhile and amazing snatched up a little crib near the beach figured I'd check shit out for a few days before setting up shop see if I can make some connections The subplot with the actress is incredible as he gets her whole daytime TV show cast and crew hooked on the same junk. Uh, and then that's followed by what he refers to as Operation Juanita, uh, where he's trying to woo this young college girl in front of her mom and everything. And it's just like so dark and depressing, but beautifully shot. Yeah. There's all these canted angles with like, I guess like high speed handheld stuff with super saturated colors. There are multiple times where Dickerson will line the shot up completely vertically to start. Uh, and that's like the opening image from a cut and then just tilt the camera down mm -hmm. over the course of a second into a normal frame. So yeah, it's a, it's a lot of weird like vertical use of the scope frame, which is a weird thing to say. Yeah. Uh, but Dickerson, man, he's, he's really exploring or Dickerson and Lee Batek are really exploring every kind of like angle and movement and they can get with the super intimate uh, Super 16 setup that they have going. No, yeah, like a lot of like epic, like low angles that they hit too. And it's, yeah. and it is like, it's kind of interesting in how that relates to the tone of the movie because like, of course, DMX doing some bad stuff here, you know, getting his girlfriends hooked on smack and stuff. Like that stuff's no good. Mm -hmm. But, it, you know, it's like the way it's shot and presented and, you know, DMX, you know, cool guy you know I, I didn't quite i'm like oh yeah this guy's a pretty bad guy yeah. you know kind of you know like and maybe you know with like the duchovny character too maybe Arquette. that's or fuck <laughs> he's duchovny now um no <laughs> no arquette with the arquette character maybe that's intentional maybe we're supposed to get caught up in like you know just kind of like the like DMX is like kind of like gangster fantasy or whatever. And then I mean, you kind of soberly realize like, Oh, this is not a good way to live. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I do think the brutality is sort of like emerges the deeper we get because we like, we see, we begin with that narration and like DMX, like talking about like him, like coming back to like redeem himself. Mm -hmm. And he's pretty nice in the beginning. Too. Yeah. Yeah. He's pretty nice <laughs> there. And, <laughs> Uh, I don't know. As you get more and more of the story, it's like, could there ever really be a redemption for this guy? Because <laughs> it's so fucking brutal. And like some of the most horrifying stuff happens at the end there before he comes back. Like the scene where and like because a lot of the time when he's getting these women hooked on heroin, it's he's saying it's cocaine yeah, at yeah. first. And then just like building up that dependence that way. And then with the, the college girl, 
there. He gets her hooked on heroin and she doesn't have enough money. And there's that like horrifying scene like shot in the mirror where he's like fucking her to give her a fix. And that's just like, I don't know. That was a a lot. Yeah. And the scene leading up to that when she calls him too and she's just like drenched in the sunlight uh, with the the sun going down. Where it's like the split screen. Oh, no, no, no. Before that, uh, I, I think there's a split screen right before she comes over but when she's asking to like have money to go to a clinic and she's at the uh phone booth the pier at the phone booth and it's just this wide shot of the sunset going down and then it cuts away to dmx on the phone saying you know looking at that sunset because you know it'll be your last one or something along those lines Mm -hmm. and it's like it's it's really brutal but so beautifully presented um yeah, like I, going back to noir again. It's just like the the aestheticization, aestheticization, whatever of just fucking gruesome immorality. Uh, and going back to the fucking shield, you know, uh, just the success of that aesthetic mode. Like the way that aesthetic mode works for me uh, is yeah, it's challenging. It makes me think about my own, you know, like, uh, what, what am I getting off to here? Uh, and, but also it's just like looking at it on a pure formal level, obviously it's, it's phenomenal. I feel like one of the gen, like tends to usually be a more legitimate, uh, tends to usually be a more legitimate, fuck a more legitimate screenwritery gripe is that like narration is oftentimes inessential. But I like the DMX narration mm-hmm. here because we get a really disturbing insight to this character's mind mm-hmm. where he's like fully aware how fucked up the things that he's doing mm-hmm. is. Like he's talking about like drugging these women with like heroin instead. And he's like, Yeah, it's like I, I like I I know it's bad, but like I'm doing it. I Oh, sorry, not to interrupt. No, no, but I was gonna say like, like, yeah, that kind of gives like a noir feel to the, like DMX's character, and also just like the way he talks, they'll be like kind of like, almost like kind of like uh, noir lead, kind of like smooth one-liners. Like when he's picking up that girl, he's like, I think I know what your greatest weakness is. Like, uh, I for <laughs> I can't remember it now. It sounds like a male soul soul quote, but it's like, <laughs> I think your your biggest weakness is that you could laugh at anything. Or, or that's painful or something. No, like it's, uh, yeah, he says, like, <laughs> your biggest weakness is the things that will make you laugh will also make you cry. And it's like, if you, like... And you, that's your strength and your weakness. Exactly. Like, <laughs> if you funny if, addendum to that. If, if you don't think, if, like, if you think about that for only, like, one second, you're like, damn, that's fucking sick. Damn. But also, <laughs> yeah. that he keeps going, yeah, he says the things that will hurt, uh, hurt you the most are also the things that will make you laugh the most or something like that. Yeah. And they just take a beat and he's like, that's your biggest strength and your biggest weakness. <laughs> like, epic. That's that's sick. That's what it kind of moves away. I guess no, it doesn't move away from being raw because that is as like you know lofty as this guy is gonna get. You know, it's not gonna get much more brain heavy than that um, because that's just not how he operates. He we see exactly how he operates. Uh, he's a hustler first and foremost. He is there to build his status you know dealing in los angeles Mm -hmm. and dispose of anyone who gets in the way of that 
And, you know, the, it's not like you need to make a film that critiques that because if you put that out there, it critiques itself pretty much. Uh, but this film still does a pretty good job of condemning the DMX character if you need that. Yeah. It, it, you know, if you need that redemp- uh, condemnation to enjoy it or whatever. Um, and more so, I mean, like, you get that surface level, like, critique of Arquette as, like, a white artist yeah. like appropriating that type of like gang story to be bought and sold as like entertainment. But we do have to mention that the way it wraps up with art, like even if that critique is there, because I think it yeah. is yeah. Uh, just the existence of the character. There is the critique, but the way it went, the way it plays out is so ridiculous that that had that cider house rules feeling when uh, David Arquette has the car that's full of one hundred twenty five thousand dollars and DMX's son saves his life. And then he tells DMX's son to take the car. He's like, just get out of here. <laughs> Go take the car. And it's like, OK, man, this is ridiculous. Like, yeah. uh, he's like, the cops are coming. I'll be fine. Just get out of here. I mean, when Once DMX kind of leaves the movie, it is like you, you kind of just want it's like, let's wrap it up a little yeah. bit. Yeah, you know absolutely. I mean? And and like and it it shows what kind of an interesting presence, you know, DMX was like, you know, and I think this movie does a good uh, way of like kind of letting him do monologues rather than like doing a bunch of like heavy dialogue scenes or something like that. Like it plays to uh, some of his strengths. Yeah, because I think he's really internal. And I think something that works like that is is belly because of like just the internal nature of that film kind of, mm-hmm. but you could see where it's like, you almost want it to be more internal. Like this, I don't, I don't say this is, you know, better than belly or even close to it, mm-hmm. but th- this does pull off the getting inside of DMX's head kind of thing because he is such a singular uh, presence on screen or in his music. The, mm-hmm. My final thoughts on this are pretty much that it's just like, it's pretty much successful as a neo-noir pastiche Almost just, or not a neo-noir pastiche because that's redundant. It's successful as a neo-noir on an aesthetic level uh, and because of DMX's performance. Because, frankly, the the script as a bare bones, like, Mm -hmm. neo-noir narrative to weave outside of a couple elements of it, eh, maybe it's a little weak, but I think putting DMX in the lead role is what makes it fucking sing, obviously, because... It's just him, you know, it's, or, you know, it's not him, him, but it's, you just buy it so fucking easily. Uh, And it feeds into, you know, the, the strengths of the film so well. So I'm going to go three and a half bullets on this one. I think Dickerson and Libatech make this an absolute aesthetic feast and DMX's presence is incredible. Yeah, I'm going to go with a three and a half bullets as well. And yeah, pretty much to piggyback off of what you said, like. Uh, Libatique and Dickerson like squeeze all the juice out of the script for what it's worth and like find creative ways to make some certain scenes that could be just be very standard and boring scenes that you've seen before like work like I really liked when DMX uh, first moves to LA and he's trying to find who's selling the the most high class heroin who's selling the best heroin love that and, montage. and, and, and yeah it's like you got a montage and it's like it's uh, it's stylistically shot just kind of like minimalistic in a black room and you just have like uh people from different races in la you know presenting their their dope and uh you know it's just a it's an interesting way to do it and you get some really like um you know claustrophobic high angles like it's just it's kind of a 
it's just a it just shows it's a one example of many in this movie of their kind of like creativity of taking something standard and inserting it with like you know great visual flair absolutely and, and like we said dmx is here and he's he's doing a lot of good shit so yeah what about you, JT? Um, I'm also giving this one three and a half bullets. A shot of the sixth sense. We nice. just can't stop agreeing this week. It's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it looks beautiful, the movie. And, I mean, I pretty much am echoing your sentiments as well. I think DMX's plot is obviously what shines through. Like, his performance is uh, fantastic. And I really like the, like, Arquette as a framing device, but it, much like the DMX son, Mike, it, it doesn't add all that much. If it, if there's more there, I think this would be a really great movie rather than just like a pretty good one, but uh, it's beautiful to look at. So I had fun throughout. And I, I like Michael Ely as like an actor, to be honest, like I've seen him be really good in other stuff. So it's kind of, he kind of has like a weird, like he's kind of brushed off to the corners in this movie. I mean, it's kind yeah. of like the standard, uh, I don't know, noir or gang thing where it's like he's he failed to kill someone. So now the gang has put out a hit on him yeah. to like tie up loose ends. And I think that like doesn't really do much for him. Yeah, it is. It's, it is. You know, I think that's when I was first tapped into like how, you know, brutal this movie was going to get when you see a sister get murked. You're like, oh, oh, dang. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um. I accidentally murked your sister. Uh, <laughs> extended clip podcast at gmail.com is where you can email us for everybody's favorite segment. And our first email comes to us from Cody Collins. The subject is movies, baby. And he says, what's up, fellas? I'm a slightly overweight guy from good old West Virginia. I just wanted to know what you guys thought of the work from Jody Hill and Danny McBride. Have a great day, fuckers. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> now listen, fat. <laughs> hey, fat. <laughs> now, uh, this is an interesting one because it's not interesting for me because you guys both know more about this stuff than me. Yeah. So go off. I mean, probably like my favorite people making TV right now is like Jody Hill, Gordon Green, Danny McBride. I mean, Eastbound and Down, like obviously... I mean, all Eastbound and Down Vice Principals and Righteous Gemstones, which, you know, since it's not quite completed yet, I can't quite assess it, you know, to like Vice Principals and Eastbound. But I mean, I don't, it's some of the funniest shit ever. And it's like what's what's so amazing about it is like they make a point to hit like dramatic points, which makes like, you know, everything in the show a lot more better. Like it, it is committed to its drama for how goofy of a show it is and i feel like most comedies are like so sloppily especially tv it's like very sloppy or it's like sitcom mode which is like a different mode but there's like less detail it's like these these kind of feel like you know they feel like movies to me it's you know we you know people like twin peaks or movies you know i say this is movies oh i 100 yeah. percent agree i mean i've like uh seen interviews where they talk about how they structure it out like some like seasons of Eastbound is like a seventies style movie. Yeah. And I mean I do I know you guys are less hot on it, but I observe and report I really like a whole bunch. Um, I actually just bumped my rating up on Observe and Report today when we got this email because yeah. I was like, 
I've been th- I I didn't like it when I watched it like a year ago. Like I got mm-hmm. exactly what it was trying to do and yeah. just didn't find it funny. But the more I think about it over the last year, I'm like, oh, so many funny bits in that movie. Yeah. yeah. And then I go back and watch them. I'm like, oh, those were funny bits that I was just not really laughing at at the time, mm-hmm. and must have been a me problem. Observing reports I mean, of very good and the movie. Foot Fist Way is good no, too. I, a great I, debut. I love the Foot Fist Way. Observing report is funny because it is like I feel like I watch that movie every like one and a half years, and I'm like. The people involved with this are funny. Like concept is funny, and it's just like it just never quite de- like it's delivers. Like legit, from... like Godardian, like or like Brechtian. Like <laughs> yeah. it is I think ma- so that might be it. Fucking core. I think that might be in it. terms of like might be too artful. In well, in terms of like what I was saying, in terms of like the shield or some shit like that, where it's like, is it critique or you know, are we making it at the peak of conservative culture? Where Observant Report is so clearly about what kind of guy becomes a cop and why, kind of. Mm-hmm. Uh, where it's like, as I said, Death Wish 3 mode earlier. It's it's a movie where Seth Rogen wants to go Death Wish 3 mode because he thinks that's the right thing to do. And I think that's awesome. Uh, that's a hilarious concept for a movie. So I, I need to rewatch that one ASAP. I mean, I think I love them so much because they're like complete dumb guy asshole characters go so far in that milieu where it's just i don't know it it does make me question like i mean not obviously they're not endorsing it but it like it rides a really like gross ethical line well it's like they have to have been around so much of that bullshit yeah you know it's just like you you write what you know, and when you grow up around hate, you can write hate really well. And, and it, yeah. the character of Kenny Powers is so perplexing to me because it's like he's charming and affable, but mm-hmm. is just like the biggest, like most racist, complete piece of shit. <laughs> I mean, I think it's because he does that dance between being like very cartoonish and also like yeah humanistic. Yeah. Um, like, yeah, I, I I I really like Eastbound and Down, but I haven't seen it since high school, so I mm-hmm. cannot say a thing about it. I just remember laughing at it a lot, but it's like so much, so many things that people say about it. I'm like, oh, I didn't remember that. But anyway, yeah, but- uh, Danny McBride, it, he just like had such a huge film come up, but like as Eastbound was about to start, I think Eastbound starts in '09. 08 he has like bit parts in drill bit taylor tropic thunder and pineapple express not even bit parts supporting roles mm-hmm. you know and heartbreak kid in 2007 which we reviewed on the patreon and is so fucking good mm-hmm. and he is one of the funniest performances in the heartbreak <laughs> kid remake um and then he had the land of the lost i remember that was one of the first comedies as a teenager that i saw and hated like <laughs> me and my friend would see all of the will ferrell movies we even liked danny mcbride at this point just from being in pineapple express and stuff uh, so we were so excited and we we're like this fucking blows i've always wanted to revisit that and give it a chance since mcbride was in it and i i doubt it's you know anything amazing but maybe it's Maybe there's something there, man. I don't know. Yeah, for me, for the completists. Have you seen Your Highness? Oh yeah, yeah. I have, I have. And for a movie that's totally something that I would like, that's not my bag at all. Like I don't really like fantasy stuff like that. And I know a lot of it's like parody. It's like it's still like Gordon Green and like uh, Danny McBride. They're still getting off some some good jokes. I don't I don't quite yeah. like it all the way, but it's like definitely worth watching. If you like, if like, let's say you've seen all the 
you've seen Eastbound Vice Principals and Gemstones. Check that out. Check check their collabs on film. Yeah, so you would say the the TV stuff is just better than the film stuff. I mean, them, Foot right? Fest Way is like it's 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 a little bit more raw and unpolished than mm-hmm. like what their TV style would be, but it's just on par in terms of uh humor i would say did you see the most recent one uh the hunt legacy of the white tail deer hunter i I tried to start that on netflix it's like i think it's a netflix movie it's just not funny unfortunately like i was really i really wanted to like reclaim it and act and like actually it's good but i think like brolin is the lead and just can't nail like the performance it's not as exaggerated and goofy mm. i think is the thing it's more of like a grounded like serious oh, okay like set in one place in the woods i mean lex g i think has talked about the woods is the worst place to set a movie <laughs> and it's like fucking true it's fucking boring to yeah. like look at yeah that's true um yeah, that, that, that's that. I'm going to rewatch Eastbound and then I watched the first few episodes of Ice Principles and thought it was funny, but I, mm-hmm. I'm going to rewatch Eastbound first. I don't think I even finished watching Eastbound. I just remember thinking it was really funny in high school. Oh, dude, you, you're going to love. I mean, it's I love season four and like season four is like kind of like a whole parody of like sports talk shows. Oh, awesome. and like he gets like a job I, at a sports <laughs> talk show. That, so money. With that Ken, sounds like Ken Marino. Oh, oh, that, oh that, that season sounds rules. Like it will be amazing. You know what else is going to be amazing? What? Episode 102 of Extended Clip next week. Of course. I can't wait. Yeah. We're going to talk about my favorite sport, golf. Basketball is probably still my favorite sport, but we're going to talk about golf because that's my recent fetish. (laughs) Um, Just to tease, in the future, we're going to talk about another one of this guy's sports movies in the next couple weeks, but we're going to talk about Ron Shelton's Tin Cup as the A movie here. We got Kevin Costner falling in love with Renee Russo and uh, much much like Bull Durham where he was like a minor league ball player here he's like an old uh, washed up golf pro working at the club you know and uh, we're also going to be talking about a little TV movie I stumbled upon that looks incredibly intriguing called Dead Solid Perfect uh, it's a 1988 or 89 TV movie with Randy Quaid uh, Jack Warden is also in it a fair amount and I will all like upload it or something because it seems it's only available on VHS and it's it, it's in rough quality. But like this looks like a promising one. So next week, Tin Cup, Dead Solid Perfect. I'm going to hit the links with friend of the pod, Bobby Franco, the day that this episode comes out. So may, maybe maybe if you're unfamiliar with golf, maybe you go to your local, you know, maybe you pick up a club or something. You're listening to this in the morning. <laughs> Uh, maybe cruise down to uh, Rancho Park Golf Club see if uh, you spot us playing. Just go to the country club you belong to, and uh, you know, ask if them. If you're to- listening to this, I know you belong to the country club. <laughs> Elites only, only elite people listen to this. That's what I like about the podcast. Uh, bonus episodes, extended clip. <laughs> bonus episodes, Patreon.com/slash extended clip. Two dollars a month. Bonus episodes. Always yeah. good. Always good. Always better than the main feed. <laughs> yeah. Always better than the main feed. What, what was our last bonus episode again? Tim Allen's directorial debut, Crazy on the Outside. Eddie, Eddie makes a passionate case for Crazy on the Outside, a, t- a movie that no one else would really <laughs> do that for. So maybe... Yeah, you guys didn't say a word. It was a monologue. For yeah, <laughs> yeah. But you, you sparked that fire. Yeah, We're really hiding our push for Tim Allen autorism behind the paywall yeah you got that you got the six wives of henry lefay who knows what other tim allen movies we're gonna cover 
behind that $2 paywall. I think Alan might actually be similar to the Hill McBride thing where it's like the, the TV efforts are so clearly auteur, or sorry, the film efforts are so clearly auteur efforts from the guys who made the TV shows you love. They're just maybe not quite the TV shows you yeah. love, which are the true auteur expressions. Even though my crazy, ugh, I almost called it my crazy life. <laughs> uh, crazy on the outside is a pretty fucking raw expression of Tim Allen. Yeah, and also I don't, I don't watch Home Improvement. I'm not a Home Improvement Come on, guy. Oh man! <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, right yeah. now I'm getting you into Frasier. Come ne- come season three of extended clip, Malcolm will be into Home Improvement. Stop acting like you watch Home Improvement. Eddie. <laughs> I have seen at least forty episodes of Home Improvement, and you're a big fan. You like it? Yeah. Okay. In terms of in ter- okay, yeah. let me put it this way: in terms of sitcoms, and mm-hmm. the sitcom is 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 a genre that I watch to fall asleep. Yes. So an incredible sitcom, a masterpiece sitcom keeps me up for two episodes. Okay. A Frasier, a Seinfeld. <laughs> of course. Uh, the, these keep me up for two episodes. Third episode, I start zoning out, maybe even throw on a talk show to fall asleep to because like it's too good to fall asleep yeah. to. Uh, a step below that stuff like news radio, super fucking good, but like one episode and then I'm conking out. Um, home improvement. I'll get through an episode before I conk out for sure. All right. Well, hey, it's you funny go- to, to <laughs> see your sitcom rankings related to your sleep schedule. Yeah. This uh, is Kevin, fascinating. Now, that's the thing, because if it's truly bad, I can't tune it out. Uh, but the mark of a good sitcom is if I can still just like tune it out and go to sleep. Kevin can wait. I always get to that second act break, but I haven't finished an episode. Kevin can wait? The the uh, Kevin James sitcom, the newer one. Oh, shit. I forgot about that one. It's it's kind of funny. I've started yeah. like five different episodes. <laughs> they're all pretty... <laughs> the, there's one with Adam Sandler. Oh Well, King of Queens is... Cla- that's, that that's, is an that's, actually that's, good... That's a two episode. It's right? very funny. <laughs> <laughs> I watched it when I went back home to my parents. Very funny show. Yeah, King of Queens is absolutely a two episode for me. <laughs> <laughs> this new this new scale we're all going on. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll see you next week. We reap what we sow. That's what the Bible says. Payback's a motherfucker. I think James Brown said that. Same shit. We all know the story. Or at least we pretend we do. The Hindus have a word for it. Karma. They believe in reincarnation. That a man pays in the next life for all the shit he's done in the previous one. He keeps on paying, too, until he gets it right. Now, if I had to do it all over again, well, 